Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of talking about nursing and healthcare and true crime. We just get into a little bit of everything on this podcast. I'd like to welcome Robert Malaire with Malaire Legal Nurse Consulting. Hey, Robert. How are you doing? Good to be here. Hey, it's good to have you. I'm really excited to have you because I know that a lot of my listeners email me and message me at just kind of asking about different types of nursing. And so we've been trying to explore that and see, you know, what all is out there. I'm curious about it myself. And legal nursing is something, legal nurse consulting is something that I am really fascinated by. Obviously, I love true crime and the whole legal world is just fascinating to me. And I think there's a lot of nurses out there who are interested in it, but it's probably a little intimidating. So for the good nurse portion of our show, we're actually going to talk to you and talk about what it is to be a legal nurse consultant and about your job and your company. So I'm really excited to get to do that and kind of introduce that that career option to some of our listeners. All right. I like being the good guy. Our bad nurse story, we definitely have a just horrible, tragic story to tell you guys. Definitely not our proudest moment as healthcare professionals and as nurses, because as we say all the time on this podcast, the vast majority of people in healthcare go into it for the right reasons. They're amazing, wonderful people that will sacrifice themselves to help others, to advocate for others. And we do it all the time. And yet there will always be people who will kind of slip through the cracks, who will go into healthcare for other reasons, bad apples. And we have to keep an eye on those people. We have to be aware of these types of things that can happen. And so that's why we are not going to bury head in the sand and pretend like the stuff doesn't happen. We're going to talk about it, put it out there in the open so that we can all kind of be on the lookout for those occasional, very rare instances that something like this happens. So before we get started with this bad nurse story, I do want to remind everybody that if you haven't gotten your tickets yet for the Nurse Creator Con event in Austin, Texas on September 24th, please go to nursecreatorcon.com and get your tickets because they're going fast. If you can't be there in person, we're going to be doing a virtual event, but it is going to be so much fun. There's so much involved with this event. For one thing, LegalNurse.com is sponsoring and helping us to pay for this event. You're going to be there, Robert, helping people understand what it is and helping if there's someone there interested in becoming a legal nurse consultant, helping them. But we're going to have all kinds of people there, aesthetic nurse. We're going to have Jessica Seitz talking about if you want to grow your followers on Facebook. And the nurse Erica is going to be talking about TikTok. Michael Simple Nursing is going to be talking about starting his business. He is unbelievable. The lineup looks fantastic. Oh my gosh, yes. APRN Beauty is going to be talking about writing ebooks. She has written so many books and 
you know, I'll probably talk about podcasting a little bit. Who knows? I know that I myself am excited to be there and LegalNurse.com, the owner, Tate. I mean, we are ecstatic to be a part of it and we look forward to being there. So we hope everybody comes out. Yes. Oh, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. It's The evening p- portion is going to be hilarious. Mike's going to sing one of his parody songs. We're going to have a taco bar, a cash bar. It's just going to be, it's going to be a blast. We'll do a live podcast. I just, I, oh man, I cannot wait. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. This is the story of Brian Rosenfeld. He was an LPN in St. Petersburg, Florida. He was the oldest of nine children, and his mother, when she was in her early 30s, got sick with a rare cancer disease. So her doctors were saying, hey, you should, they lived in New York at the time, and her doctor said, it would be better if you lived in a warmer climate. So they moved to Florida. He grew up in poverty conditions and had to take care of his younger siblings when his mother passed away in 1973. He wasn't really close to his father. He kind of resented him. I guess maybe he felt like he didn't take care of his family as he should, but his father described him as a good boy. When he was older, he enrolled in a junior college and he met this woman who was quite a bit older than him, she went back to school at an older age, at the age of 54. And her name was Lee Wade. She was a widow. She would later, after kind of all of the events took place, she would comment on her friendship with Rosenfeld and said that he was like a little boy, very animated. And despite that, she said that he had no warmth and she felt something inhumane from him. I always feel like people in hindsight, see these things. But maybe while it's, you know, while you're in the middle of this relationship, it's harder to see that sort of thing. So he confided in way in her leeway that he was gay, but had never been in a relationship. She encouraged him to move to New York, where he could be closer to his oldest brother. And so he kind of went back and forth. He would be in Florida for a while, and then go to New York, and then come back. And at one point, he ended up back in Florida, and started working as an orderly in nursing homes. So I always find that interesting, the title orderly. You just don't hear that anymore. I think that they're called nursing assistants. It's kind of an old school term. Yeah. It reminds me of the uh, psychiatric ward movies, you know, the orderlies, you know, a little mm-hmm. one floor of the cuckoo's nest kind of reference. You don't hear it much anymore these days. Yeah, yeah I agree. Now it's more like nurse tech, nursing assistant, that sort of thing. Much more professional titles. So in 1981, he was charged with posing as a nurse with a phony license. We've done some of those stories on this podcast of people impersonating nurses and doctors 
imposters, you know. So I guess he tried his hand at that for a while. He also began a stormy on again and off again relationship with a woman by the name of Ernestine Wildfewer, who was 10 years older than him. And they didn't really have a sexual relationship, but he, it was like they developed some sort of a relationship because they, you know, they would go to dinner. He would, you know, be good to her children and even promised to marry her. And she said they were going to be one big happy family. So kind of a different kind of a a situation. Maybe he just wanted that family situation, but I guess he was somewhere in between where he didn't feel comfortable having a relationship, especially during this time with a man, but he also didn't feel intimately toward women. So he felt like it was okay to work something out like this with somebody who maybe needed some help. Well, it was a little bit of a weird situation. I get a feeling from what we read and what's in this presentation, I don't think he really was sure what he wanted or who he was at the time. Yeah, I think he was probably trying to figure all of that stuff out and maybe struggled you know, a lot with his identity. And according to this woman, Wildfuhr, he would bring drugs home from the nursing home and apparently had a fascination with Melaril, which was an antipsychotic medication that you would normally prescribe to patients with schizophrenia or mood disorders. This is so weird. He would use this as plant food. And one time he put it in Wildfewer's coffee and she tasted it right away. And she said it tasted really bitter and asked him, what did you put in my coffee? And he said, Melaril. Just, you know, just thought I would try it out, see how it worked. So she spat it out, she said. And I don't know, it seems odd to stay with somebody who would do something like that. There's a whole lot weird about this whole story that when you look at it in hindsight, you're like, why didn't all this stop way back? You know, this this story just kind of builds on itself, snowballs, if you will. Yeah, one weird situation and circumstance after another that you... In and of itself, you would think maybe something should have happened. And then they just build, as you as you said. Well, the fact that you brought up initially that he was making himself out to be medical providers or nurses when he wasn't even licensed or qualified, the rest of the story should not even be in existence if that had been addressed and stopped right there. The rest of this whole story would be void. And then, you know, medications coming home with this person that he's intimate with. She doesn't report it, I guess, at the time, So, and nobody at the nursing home that he was working at recognized that the medications were being stolen or taken. You know, I've never seen a a, uh, schizophrenic plant in my life, so I'm not really sure what the purpose of the feeding of Melaril 2 plants is, but I think there's a lot of red flags early on, like is very common in these cases, especially in the line of work that I do that I see, and so often... In hindsight, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, if he was doing these or he or she was doing these things. And we got to be better at identifying those early on, especially in cases like this, where this, you know, where, where as you're explaining, we'll, we'll continue to go worse and worse. I know. It, it's so easy to see this stuff in hindsight. And I think that it's just it's hard for people in the moment when they're connected with someone, have a relationship and they're close to them. It's probably hard to make that decision to turn them into the authorities and open this huge Pandora's box that is, you know, investigating into them some event. And I I think people justify just sweeping it under the rug and moving on when they just don't stop to think about um, if this person is willing to do this, what else are they capable of doing or willing to do to someone? And if it does escalate, you know, it's just a lot going on, you know, in that situation. 
1982, Rosenfeld announced that he had found someone else and became a companion to Morris Beauchamp, who was a mental health counselor 15 years his senior. He studied for his nursing degree while living with Beauchamp, and when that person passed away, he took an interest in Catholicism and considered becoming a monk, but he really was conflicted spiritually because he sort of resented the church for not helping his family after his mother passed away. So even though he was interested in it, he, you know, didn't necessarily want to make that commitment. He was torn. Yeah, he was torn. So on several occasions, he apparently shoplifted Bibles and religious items from retail stores and was never arrested for that. As time went on, his taste for crime escalated. And according to a friend, Rosenfeld didn't like the color of his apartment complex and secretly vandalized the building with satanic imagery and anti-police slurs so that his landlord would be forced to repaint the building. What in the world? You know, that's one way. You know, you could move. There, that's one option. That, But that's, you know, that's probably way too hard. It's so hard moving. that Everybody hates moving. It's much easier just to paint satanic words on the side of your uh, apartment building. Yeah, I mean, you never know. I mean, everybody has different ways about going and achieving something. He had his own route, you know? I don't know. I guess the Catholicism thing didn't work out, so he decided to go the furthest extreme from that. And I don't know. The building never got painted, I guess? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it worked or not. Ah. I mean, what makes no sense about that is the first thing that came into my mind when I read that was if I'm sure that what happened is this apartment complex probably just repainted over it the same color that the apartments already were. They didn't repaint the whole building. I, why would you have to do that? He got a fresh coat. Mm-hmm. It's good. As this story goes on, we're going to find out that he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. So one thing that he said in his letter that he sent to the state for licensing it was that he loved to take care of people. He said, so many of these patients in the hospital have not one person in their lives that are willing to listen and talk with them. I sit, talk, and listen to my patients. I'm going to say one thing about this. Who in the world working in a hospital has time to sit and talk to their patients? Because I can tell you right now, I would love to do that, but there is no way I could do that and take care of all my patients. It just wouldn't happen. When I read this, and after knowing the full story where you're going, my mind kind of went back to the statement he made. And I really want to interview him and find out what his definition of take care mm-hmm. means. It's a really kind of a blanket statement that a lot of healthcare people use. And we see it in a lot of these, when we, as we had spoken about earlier, we see this, you know, this statement made a lot, especially like in nursing school. Why are you going to be a nurse? I want to care for people. I want to take care of people. And I might have said the same thing when I started my nursing career. But as I've now 23 years into being a nurse... My answer would be very different. But you see that that's a very common uh, statement made by nurses and healthcare people, especially early on, I think, in their careers. But I think I think he took care of people in a very different, non-medical way. Yeah, the meaning behind that was so, obviously very odd. Yeah, something very different for him. Well, his coworkers recalled a drastically darker side to him. He was described by his coworkers as sadistic, and they felt like he enjoyed inflicting pain on other people. They said that if nursing assistants did something to irritate him, he would over-administer laxatives to patients as a means to get back at the nursing assistants. Again, I'm going to say, you know, I will interject here that I still work at the bedside full-time, and I know that if if my patients are getting laxatives and they're having a problem with diarrhea or, you know, just having bowel movements a lot, I'm going to be the one helping to clean them up, so not sure what kind of a nurse he was if he was doing that so that the assistants would have this problem because 
uh, for me, I would probably be the one <laughs> having to clean that up. And again, I go back to, you know, as, as you read your kind of his story and you look back through his professional career, unprofessional career, I guess I should say, there wasn't anybody that came out and said, yeah, he was a good nurse or he was, you know, he, it was all the negatives. And again, you start off with him, you know, perpetrating being a nurse without a license, which I don't even know how he qualified to be a nurse later. That's a whole separate legal issue that the board of nursing, I don't even know how that happens in the state where he became licensed in Florida, first of all. But then you have the medications with the woman that he's living with that wasn't reported. And then you have these people that, I mean, obviously he's causing harm to these residents and the CNAs are recognizing that these people are going through this. I mean, he could dehydrate them as these type of medications are used. It causes the gut not to work like it's supposed to. They become dependent on those. There's a whole escalation of events that you can watch in this story where there, I mean, there are definite timeline spots that people could have stopped. And if they recognize it, and I know that it's become a very frequent and popular saying, but if you see it, report it. And this is one of those, I mean, ideological stories where it's just, I mean, it is, I mean, if these people would have just addressed the issue at these very, very specific moments in his life, maybe the end story wouldn't be as, as horrible as it becomes. Yeah, I agree. I think that maybe sometimes people think, well, how could I prove it? I know he's probably doing this, but I don't have any proof. But yet if you report it and let the investigation be handled by professionals, you don't know what they're able to find. If you report it soon enough, you see something that is concerning. If you suspect something like this is going on, even if you think there is nothing that can be done or that there isn't any proof, it's at least, if you alert the authorities, it's at least going to cause the light to be shining on them and people are going to be paying closer attention to what they're doing and watching for patterns and who knows? I mean, if, and this was back in the day a bit. So nowadays we have ways of tracking medications that are pulled out of the medicine cabinet, you know, the Omni cells. So you can see like he accessed, you know, this stool softener regularly and this, the count for the stool softener is off or, or something like that. Who knows? Maybe that something like that was possible back then. You just don't know if you don't say anything and you're not helping anyone by keeping your mouth shut. You're just, so many things, people, you may think that's, well, what's the big deal? It just causes them to have some diarrhea. But as you said, that can cause all sorts of physiological problems. They start having diarrhea and it can deplete them of their electrolytes or potassium levels, magnesium levels can go down. That can cause ca cardiac issues. It's, this is a problem. This is, you could kill someone by giving them too many stool softeners, dehydrating them, especially elderly people. This, it's not funny. It's not a joke. It's not a prank. It is completely inappropriate. And I will say something else for people who are on social media that like to go on there and post these memes that you, memes that you think are funny. It's just a joke. That's what people are. It's just a joke. You know, you should have a sense of humor. I have a sense of humor. I love to laugh. And I joke about inappropriate things probably way too much. I, my brain tends to want to, I want to laugh when I'm not supposed to laugh. It's a coping mechanism. I love laughter, but I also love my nursing license and don't want to lose it. And I prefer not to go to jail at some point because I made some stupid comment on social media that I didn't really mean. I just thought was funny, but that an investigator can then come back at some point and say, oh, you were joking around here. You said you, you administer laxatives to patients who you don't like, or you give a laxative right before, at the end of your shift so that the next nurse, you know, if, if you don't like the next nurse, you know, that, that sort of thing. And people, 
it, it can come back to bite you. They can find out who you are. I have two points that come up in that little segment of his story. And I started off my career in the military as a combat medic. But before even that, I was a certified nursing assistant. I started off as a CNA, became a medication aide before becoming, becoming a nurse. When I hear this story, I see this, especially in my professional career now as a legal nurse consultant, reviewing cases, being in courts, deposing other nurses with attorneys. The CNA's role, I think, is widely undervalued. And they are the key advocates for the patients because they spend the most time with them. And they usually notice things long before the nurse even gets involved. And they report those things to the nurse. Never underestimate your value, no matter what your role is or where you are and what we consider the hierarchy of the medical field. Just because you're a CNA or you're a housekeeper or you do something that maybe somebody doesn't recognize as a licensed you're as pivotal a role as anybody else in the healthcare field, sometimes more so than the nurse that's there working because you're with those patients. You're the one that recognizes, changes them. However minute or insignificant as it seems at the moment, it could be invaluable that you recognize those things and report them. And just because I come to work in your facility and I, I mean, I have a master's degree, I've been doing this for 23 years. If I don't have the best intentions for my patient, it's your job to advocate for them. And you, I mean, you're that frontline worker. You're the one sitting there with them I mean, all the time. And again, this is another one of those examples of people recognize something in this nurse's role and in his care of patients that was not in their best interest and was actually causing harm. And it wasn't reported or nothing was done about it. The second part about what you said about posting on social media, I very intentionally do not have social media. I am on LinkedIn with my business, um, but I'm not on Facebook. I don't do Twitter, whatever all the other stuff is. I don't even know what it is. I stay away from that, number one, because it drives me up the wall. Uh, but secondly, I, I have a very weird sense of humor <laughs> when it comes to things. And I don't want to get myself or say something that I regret or that can harm me or my business. But I've seen cases over and over again where nurses make those kind of off-the-cuff or unintentional um, statements. But then there's a lawsuit that happens somewhere in their realm of healthcare. It may not even directly be involving them. But then as soon as that lawsuit includes them, the investigators from opposing counsel start looking into every aspect of their life. And social media is very much a part of that. And I, they will draw those things out and they will use them against you. They will use them to try to make, to identify you. They are going to use them to say, is this the person you are? So you're making, just be very, very careful with social media because as fun as it is, and some people use it as an outlet, it can very much be used against you. Yeah, so you make an excellent point there. I mean, I think that there are, there's a lot of good that can come from it bringing awareness about issues. I, I don't know. There's a lot of good, that there's all, but there's also a lot of negative out there. And I think it can be really harmful to people. Remember, there was a few years ago, there was a nurse who, she was a new nurse. She was working in an ICU and it, she was working night shift. And she just posted on Facebook. She, it wasn't a picture or anything. She just posted on Facebook, you know, in work in ICU tonight, would somebody, I'm bored, would somebody please code so I'll have something to do? And people absolutely lost their minds over that, reported her to her, you know, to the administration of the hospital. She got fired. I mean, I don't know where she is now. I'm sure she was able to work through that. Hopefully it was just something dumb that she said. Clearly she didn't mean that she would want someone to die just so she'd have something to do. But it's just a joke. I think it, 
that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like just real innocent comment that you think is just benign and it could turn into absolute catastrophe, like losing your license. I mean, I actually think she got suspended, her license suspended for that. I mean, good grief. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. Just kind of expanding on what you just said, one of the cases that comes to my mind, which I thought was really innocent at the time, and then I saw how it blew up. It absolutely destroyed a nurse's career, her personal life. She had she worked in the ICU, and uh, she was working, I think, four 12s in a row. And I think on the third night, it was a Friday night, her and a bunch of friends went out to a bar, club, and she was posting on a social media site pictures of them drinking all night. And she kept saying, oh, man, I got to be at work at 6 a.m. I got to be at work at 6 a.m. Well, that next morning, there was an incident that happened at the facility not even a patient of hers, but in the same ICU unit. And when that occurred, the defense counsel, or the, I'm sorry, the plaintiff attorney and the investigators went in, they found all that, and they pulled that in. They used that against her, saying that she was more than likely than not intoxicated or inebriated to the point where she made poor judgments that following board. And it did not sit well with the jury for someone to be, and it was, you know, these posts went on to like two o'clock in the morning, she had to be at work at six. And so you have to be very careful with what you post. You're, I mean, nursing is a professional career, and people view what you do on social media and make judgments about you, whether they're, they're right or wrong. It, most hospitals, I think, have some sort of a rule that you're not supposed to be, you can't have alcohol within so many hours, like eight hours or something before your shift starts. That's there for a reason. That is there for a reason. Good grief. It's hard to imagine what somebody's thinking. How could you know that you have to be at work the next morning and be doing something like that such so late? Even if you're not still inebriated, even if you stopped drinking a few hours before or something, just to know that you're only a few hours of sleep, you're not going to be clear-headed to be able to make good decisions. You're going to you could make a medication error, you could all kinds of things could happen. That is just not good at all. There are so many amazing nurse creators out there right now. How would you like to come to a really cool city, Austin, Texas, and not only get to meet some of these most fascinating nurses, but get to learn from them how they became successful. We're meeting up in Austin, Texas on September 24th at an absolutely adorable art gallery where we're going to get to hear them teach masterclasses on everything from Facebook to TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and even me. I'll tell you all about podcasting, how to get sponsors, all of that stuff. Not only are we going to have masterclasses, we're also going to have a fun evening of entertainment and food, taco bar, dinner and non-alcoholic beverages are included in the ticket. And then we're also going to have a cash bar. So hurry and get registered because tickets are on sale right now with an early bird price and in-person tickets are limited. So I can't wait to see you all there. Go to nursecreatorcon.com to register. That's nursecreatorcon.com to register. Or we also will put the link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And 
I have plantar fasciitis, so now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash goodnursebadnurse. Be sure and put the forward slash goodnursebadnurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash goodnursebadnurse. On July 31st, 1991, Helen Gasky Brummer specialized in elder abuse at the Florida Department of Child and Family Services. She received a call from the abuse hotline about a suspicious nursing home death. Muriel Watts, she was 79 years old. She was a comatose patient at Rosedale Manor, and she had passed away. And even though she was a comatose patient, she it was unexpected, or rather sudden. And multiple nurses' aides on duty at the time reported that they didn't believe that she died from natural causes. So an LPN who this investigator interviewed was convinced that foul play was involved in Watts' death. She learned that Rosenfeld was the LPN in charge the night of Watts' death. According to the investigation, Watts, who was comatose, as I said, had a fever and Rosenfeld administered acetaminophen down her feeding tube. However, two aides observed him pouring a superfluous amount of brown liquid down the feeding tube following the acetaminophen. So when the aide asked him, what are you giving her? What is, what's in that? He said, don't question, don't question my methods. And she later heard him say that Watts would, quote, be gone soon. So hours later, she was dead and Rosenfeld began acting abnormally. He insisted on cleaning her body before the undertaker arrived, a task that at, for that facility is generally performed by nurses' aides. Even stranger, he washed her entire body with mouthwash and refused to let anyone help or touch her remains. So in order to have her body examined for evidence and halt her scheduled cremation, this investigator, Gasky Brummer, contacted local authorities to report her suspicions and the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office took on the case. So finally in the story, we're getting to a point that someone actually spoke up and did something that led to at least, you know, an investigation. It took a while, but finally, you know. So after speaking with Gasky Brummer and reading her investigative report, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office Deputy Chuck Vaughn placed a hold on her remains and an autopsy was performed by the medical examiner's office. He then made his way to Rosedale Manor where he learned that Rosenfeld had been fired, not just for that incident involving Watts, but also for recurring behavioral issues. He started digging further into his background and investigators learned that he had worked in more than 16 nursing homes over a 10-year span and that former colleagues relayed incidents in which Rosenfeld would physically abuse his patients. Some recalled that he bent patients' fingers back until they screamed in pain, and other co-workers detailed times when Rosenfeld threw water on a patient and shoved a banana down another's throat. Co-workers also witnessed him snapping patients' catheter tubes. 
I don't, how in the world this was not reported, I don't understand. And clearly, he's losing his job at these places. So I think the coworkers are reporting it somewhere up the chain. It's just getting, like, he's getting fired and then nothing's coming of it. I worked in administration for several years and you see these kind of things where they're like, we don't want any focus on our, you know, facility, our company, just fire them, let them go. And there'll be somebody else's problem. And you just, you know, you're just, you're making the problem worse because when they go to that next place and you see this, especially with people with mental health issues or, and especially with what I do now, and I was a director of mental health for several years in Texas and you leave, these people leave these facilities and you see this escalation of their behaviors or their crimes. And you're not solving a problem by pushing it off on somebody else. Just, I mean, please, please report it and do what you have to do. Cause I mean, there was uh, enough harm had already been done to this point. And then, or, you know, at these other facilities where these, you know, bending the fingers back or pinching off the tubers or popping them or whatever he's doing, he, he should have been out of healthcare at that point and prosecuted. But unfortunately just moved on to the next facility. As we so often see with healthcare, these instances a lot. Yes, I think that, you know, a coworker sees something like this, they report it to their manager. The manager, even if the manager goes up one level, at some point along that mid-level chain, somebody decides, we just need to get rid of this person. We don't have enough evidence. It's going to be their word against his. And so rather than creating a lot of paperwork for myself and lots of problems in a potential lawsuit for, you know, libel if he were to come back, say, you know, so they just don't want to even get involved in any of that. Let's just push it on down the road. I will say to you, if you are a manager and you're you're ever presented with a situation to stop and think about, if you're being selfish and you don't care about the people that he could potentially affect in the future, stop and think about the ramifications for yourself should it come back on you? Because in this situation, I am sure that it was not pretty when they went backwards and started looking into these situations. And then you're going to get called on the carpet for not reporting that. Why didn't you report this? You know, this, you have these coworkers that said that they told you did nothing. So I would say that you could potentially be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And what's the biggest thing is that when that fallback, and that's where you see a lot of these things, you know, occurs, you know, this last final event that occurs, then you start going back, they start interviewing these people that previously worked with him. They're like, well, he did these things. The problem is any reported abuse or neglect has to be reported to the state. And as soon as those things start coming out and they show, hey, you know, we did report this or whatever, that fac- that facility is liable. And I would be very, would be, I wouldn't be surprised at all if lawsuits or licenses weren't affected retrospectively back in his career for those things that were not addressed or reported to the state and for those incidents that were just reported by the staff later on. It's crazy to think that those things were allowed to just be swept under the rug and just because he was able to move on. And I think one of the things that you said is really, really critical because you never know where your mother or your grandmother might end up or what facility he goes to next because what if he's caring for your loved one at that next level of care and uh, you don't know until you walk in to visit and all of a sudden he's there, then what do you do? Exactly. So it's, I mean, I don't want that to happen to my family, but I don't want it to happen to anybody else's. The best thing to do is just is address it, report it, and get it taken care of. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is your facility has an audit. Do things right the first time, make sure that things are done correctly, and you don't have anything to worry about. 
but letting him move on to hurt somebody else is is unacceptable and just that's just crazy to me. Yeah, one th- you know this is really interesting because the this investigator wasn't really sure if you know him hopping from one nursing home to another was actually you know, each time he definitely was fired from each facility. But there was a report that indicated that before this murder of this patient, he had been convicted of stealing Demerol from a terminal patient at a different facility before he went to Rosedale Manor. So there there was enough, There should, I would think that there should have been enough there on his record to keep him from getting a job. And yet, I think that it's so difficult to find help in some of these facilities that say maybe some of these managers are just look over this stuff and just go, well, I wouldn't give you another chance or uh, he maybe somehow explains it away. That's the importance of reporting it though, because if enough people report it and that's what those, that's what those reporting bodies are for. You may just think it's an isolated incident, but you don't know how many other people have reported and then they get those things together. They can put a picture together to tell a story that um, may have revealed something that you maybe don't have the full picture of. But, it, I mean, if you see it, say it. Um, report it. And if you're a CNA, report it to your managers. If you're the managers, take it to your administration. Do the right thing and report it to the, the those governing bodies that, that do the licensures or the accreditations for your facility. At the, in the long run, it's going to save you, not hurt you. And it'll save a whole lot of people from getting hurt. Yeah, and it'll go on the person's record. There will be an investigation from the state board. And if there was, if every, you know, if there really wasn't an incident or, you know, it wasn't at, at the end of the investigation, they're found to, you know, be innocent or everything was fine and it was an isolated incident, then nothing will ever come of it and it, everything will be fine. But so, so if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this, I don't want to cause a huge problem. One isolated incident is probably, as we can see, not going to keep somebody from getting a job somewhere else. Uh, but if you report that, and then another person reports another one, and another per- person reports another one, and then you have all of these official reports of different things that happened from different facilities then that is going to paint a whole other picture for a potential employer that is going to look at him and say, I don't know if this is the person that we want taking care of our elderly, vulnerable people. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Just, I mean, it helped paint the picture. Every stroke or every report, you know, kind of widens the evidence against somebody and lets you see if nothing's going on, it'll be found out. But if it does, man, the fact that you saying something could protect, I mean, one person or a hundred people later. In this case, maybe up to twenty-three people and lives could have been saved from early on, whenever he was perpetrating or acting like a nurse when he wasn't qualified, to stealing medications and the family didn't, or the you know significant other didn't say anything to, you know, all these incidents that are now later reported of the activities and behaviors or, and abuse that he was, you know, dishing out to those to his patients in healthcare. It's, I mean, it. When you sit here and look at this story as a whole, it's really easy to point out all of the gaps. And, it, and those gaps could have been filled by simple people doing and reporting what they saw or what they, what they believed was happening. And I mean, it just, we're, and just a little bit of transition to kind of our current state. We're seeing that more and more in society where these shootings and things are happening. And if people would just report, you know, what they're seeing and these concerns that they have, our society would be better as a whole. But in healthcare, I mean, we have people's lives that we are taking care of 
There are significant risks associated with everything that we do from medicines to procedures. And if you have somebody intentionally causing harm, and unfortunately, they're like, you know, there's bad apples in every field. And we want to make sure that we remove those people and that, so that we can ensure that the quality of care that we give is of the highest level and that we, you know, we want our healthcare system to be the best, not to have these bad apples kind of mixed in. And unfortunately, they're there and we just got to, we have to say something to get them removed. Yeah, exactly. It's never going it, to, otherwise you, and week in, week out, as I do these stories, I see this over and over and over again, that, that what happened is that the ultimate big story where something horrible, something horrific happened was not the one isolated thing that happened. It There was literally all the stuff that led up to it, all these people that didn't report or that there were people that did report it, but the people they reported it to didn't do what they should have done, didn't handle it properly. And that is what led to that person being able to do that. So this is just another example of that happening. And the toxicology report for this patient revealed, you know, she had had a fever and he was fascinated with this medication, Melaril, and she had toxic levels of acetaminophen and five times the normal dose of that medication, Melaril. She was comatose. There was no reason for her to have Melaril in her system. So they brought him in for an interview and he told investigators that he was just really stressed and overworked and he may have accidentally administered the wrong medication to his patients. He said that he could have given her the melaril in error. He said, occasionally I've mixed up medications for a patient. And he suggested that about 50% of the time he would make a medication error when taking care of his patients. If I made a medication error 50% of the time when I go to take care of my patients, I would hope that I would not be able to keep my job because there are people watching that sort of thing. I, I always say, whenever I precept new grads, I would say, strive for perfection. Strive for 100% that you will scan the patient 100% of the time. You will scan the medication 100% of the time. You will not override. You will uh, 100% of the time. You scan or shoot for that perfection. Shoot for the 100%. You're a human being and things are going to happen in in a hospital. So you're not going to make that. You're not going to be perfect. But if you strive for perfection, you're going to get real close to it. I can't imagine 50% just being completely acceptable. I, I couldn't believe he actually made that statement because I'm like... If I actually thought that 50% of my medication administrations were inaccurate or, you know, they were medication errors, I mean, <laughs> that's that just blows my mind, first of all. But on top of that, for that amount of Melareal to go missing, where is the where's the key, where's the quality assurance? Where is the oversight? You know, the nurse coming on doesn't notice that, you know, there's this large amount of Melareal missing. Mm-hmm. There's just so many gaps in the story that just... I mean, working in healthcare this long, especially in different levels of the bedside to administration, I'm just like, there are so many misses. And these things, there are very specific safety checks in place to make sure that medication errors are identified, that medications are counted and, and ensure that they, you know, they're going to the right patient at the right time and those kind of things that medication errors can be identified to observe the patient for any you know, side effects or negative outcomes. But for that amount of medication to be gone missing, first of all, is a huge, I mean, red flags everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then just for his self-admittance, just to say, you know, 50% of my, 50% of my nursing career is an error. And just the arrogance involved in that is, is astounding to me. I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot psychologically wrong with this individual. And again, 
never should have been in healthcare to begin with, but it's just that those key aspects just, they're unacceptable. They just, I mean, they make you sit back going, how, you know, why? Yeah. If you're making a med error every other time you go to give a med, I don't know how that's not getting caught somewhere. And I know this was over 30 years ago that this happened, but still you would, I would hope that there had been, there were checks in place then. I know now there are. I wonder if maybe 50% of the time he wasn't just deliberately doing something. Maybe in in his sick head, he just was being deliberately sloppy and doing whatever he wanted to. You don't administer that much Tylenol and that much Melaril by accident. It just doesn't happen. No. And I'm 45 years old. I started my healthcare career when I was, I went to the military when I was 16. And so between my junior and senior high school. And I mean, having worked in healthcare before the EMR, the electronic medical record was in place, before all of the Technology has come into place. You know, we paper charted. Everything was done. There was still a system in place to make sure that those medication errors were identified. A lot of improvements have come. But even, I mean, 30 years ago, there were still very much procedures and things in place to ensure that there was a count, you know, from the shift to shift. And, I mean, you would know if that much medication had gone missing. And what's even more telling about his story is not only the medications from this last facility where this poor lady passed away because of him, but if you just look back over his life, he's had people just give him a pass, give him a pass, give him a pass. And he was never held responsible. And like I said, he was just passed on to the next facility. So, you know, let him be their problem. Well, his problem turned into death after death after death. And I think those facilities that didn't report should be held accountable for that. And they, it's, that's just not... Man, that's just crazy. Yeah. When they went back and looked at some of the other places that he worked and were really investigating, they were able to produce a list of patient deaths that needed to be investigated for you know, evidence of malfeasance. Many of the possible victims had been cremated rather than buried, but investigators were able to link him to the deaths of two other patients. So a former cellmate of Rosenfeld stated that he claimed to have administered lethal doses of medication to approximately 23 patients because he, quote, felt sorry for them. I don't buy that for a minute. I, I just don't believe that. I don't believe people who say that they're angels of mercy, you know, that they just wanted to put somebody out of their misery. I think that that's just somebody wanting control. And it's not your place. It's not your right or place at all to do that to, to another person just because you think and you feel sorry for them. Yeah. I think after this story, you have to change the name of your podcast to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, Horrible Nurse. Because I think this is like so far past bad. <laughs> it's, I mean, it doesn't even fall under bad. It's, it, this is horrific. Just from the, I mean, you watch his whole you know, career from even before he was licensed. And, and exactly, you know, the, all of the people that were unable to be uh, examined because they had not been buried, had been cremated. So there was no remains left to test or to, you know, to see what had happened. According to a cellmate, which, I mean, that's questionable at best because you're dealing with inmates, but and coming from a correctional background. I, uh, I mean, he's claiming that he claimed that there was 23 total. There's there's no there's no way to know for all of the people that he had access to through all the facilities that he went you know changed positions with and was employed with i mean his exposure and then the risks associated with him being with so many different patients is i don't even know what that number looks like but that's insane that's yeah there's no telling like, and it could have been stopped so i mean so many different points you're like could have stopped here could have stopped here and just got to you got to stay you got to stay true to who you are in your profession and when you like I said the most important two word four words are see something say something yes 
So true. And if you don't get results and it continues, go above and say something else. And it's just, I mean, man, horrible, horrible story. Oh, absolutely. Well, he was charged with three counts of first degree murder, but he didn't go to trial. He pled guilty because he didn't, they were going to go for the death penalty and he didn't want, he wanted to avoid that. So he pled guilty. He was given three life sentences without the possibility of parole. I don't know about you, but I have to have coffee every morning before I go to work. And lately I found myself needing more and more coffee just to get that awake and alert feeling. Well, I got this email from a company called Magic Mind, and they sent me this little elixir that I drink every morning, in addition to my coffee, because I ain't giving that up. And it has this ingredient in it called L-theanine that helps the caffeine in my coffee to last longer and to be more effective for me. So I kind of look at it as the opposite of taking melatonin on the nights before I have to work that sort of helps shut my mind down. So this has ingredients to help wake my mind up and just help me you know, be able to focus more and be more alert at work. So of course, this is in no way giving any medical advice or guaranteeing that it's going to work for you in the same way it works for me. But I, I mean, I found it to be beneficial and hey, you might too. Just go to www magicmind.co forward slash nurse and enter the promo code nurse 20. That's www.magicmind.co forward slash nurse and then use the promo code nurse 20. And of course, we'll put that link on our website. If you want to, you can go to goodnursebadnurse.com. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. So I guess we can get into our good nurse portion of this show. So Robert, I want you to just kind of let everybody know, since you're going to be featured as our good nurse for this segment, first of all, a little bit of background of on you've Give, given us a, a few hints, but you know, how did you get into nursing? What is your background like? Because it's really fascinating. Between my junior and senior year of high school, I actually joined the military. I went to basic training with the Army. Between my junior and senior year as a split option program, I knew I really thought I was going to go to college to become a physician. I thought I was going to be a surgeon at one point, but life happens as it does. And uh, came back from basic training, went finished my senior year of high school. I graduated. The day after I graduated high school, I was off to advanced individual training or AI for the military and uh, did my training as a combat medic. My military career, you know, went about the way it did. And I ended up overseas twice and I did 10 years in the Army. During that process, I decided 
that I was going to go to nursing school. I actually worked as a CNA in a facility, became a medication aide, got my license in vocational nursing in the South, LVN, in the North, LPN, kind of interchangeable terms. And then in 2001, I obtained my RN degree through a, an associate's degree program in Victoria, Texas. A was working for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice and the University of Texas Medical Branch at the time uh, in the correctional. And I took on the role as the assistant director of psychiatric and medical services for the southern region of correctional health care for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, or TDCJ. I did that for seven and a half years. The things that I got to see at working in corrections were, I mean, you have people coming from all walks of life. It's, I mean, it's it was a baptism by fire in healthcare. You, I mean, it was acute care and a very active ER. I was able to do my, able to, I was exposed to sexual assault kits, kind of a very big portion of what I do today. The foundation was laid long time ago when I didn't even know legal nurse consulting existed. I left correctional healthcare after some very horrific incidents happened in Texas. Seven inmates had escaped from one of the prisons. And this, I don't know if you all remember the story, but they killed the police officer in Dallas before the big shootout in Colorado. That was actually where my office was located in Texas. Is where the inmates escaped from. So anyway, I ended up leaving corrections at that time. I stayed very active and still remain very active with the American Correctional Association and the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare. I work as a national auditor and have since 2004 with the ACA. I audit state jails, private prisons, and federal prisons for that organization for accreditation. After leaving corrections, I became a multi-state regional director for a dialysis company that was up and coming. I worked with them for about almost seven years before they sold to a larger company. I had an opportunity to stay with that new company, but I didn't want to move. And so I became the director of mental health for DTAR Health System in Victoria, Texas. I did that for several years. And then Texas passed a law where you had to have a master's degree to hold that position. And so I went back to school to get my master's degree through Walden University. And so I took a job as the director of nursing for a long-term care nursing home facility with a 20-bed secured Alzheimer's mental health unit. I finished my master's degree and I took the job as the executive director for Brightwater Senior Living, which is a assisted living company. And in the process of doing that, I was moving from Texas to Oregon. And I'd posted on LinkedIn that I was moving and I had an attorney reach out to me and asked if I had ever considered becoming a legal nurse consultant or reviewing cases for attorneys. And I ignored him because I thought it was spam. And uh, a few days later, the attorney <laughs> called me and he's like, why didn't you respond to me? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't think you were real. And so because you get all this stuff, you know. And uh, so anyway, flew up to Oregon, actually met with the attorney, found out that he was valid and uh, had a very successful law practice here in Oregon. And I actually quit my corporate job and my wife, I convinced her to quit her job. We had only been married about six months at the time. And so she didn't divorce me, didn't think I was nuts, wanting to kind of transition to this, this kind of chapter in my career. And so we moved to Oregon and I got my certification as a legal nurse consultant through what was what at the time was the Vicki Malazzo Institute. It's now LegalNurse.com. And started my legal nurse consultant business here in July of 2015. So many doors have opened since that occurred. I've gone on to get my certifications as a sexual assault nurse examiner. 
I'm now a board-certified forensic nurse specialist, and I'm a double board-certified life care planner and nurse life care planner that uh, I take both what I do as a legal nurse consultant and I can expand and uh, determine and testify in court as to what someone's future medical costs are going to be associated with whatever occurred with them. And in 2016, I actually met Vicky for the first time. Vicky Malazzo for the first time in, in L.A. We were exhibiting at a, a legal conference for the American Association of Justice, and she happened to walk by our booth and saw her logo. I'd never met her. And so she, you know, she kind of stops and she beelined over to us. And so I got to meet her in person. And in 2017, we went on a cruise out of Florida to do my recertification through her program and had a nice conversation with her and her husband. And at the end of that cruise, she wanted to have a meeting. We met and she asked if I would be interested in being a mentor for her program, and which I still continue to today through LegalNurse.com. I speak to people that are considering coming into this field, and then I work with current other CLNCs that are needing help with case development, marketing, and building their business and that kind of thing as well. So that's kind of where I'm at now. And so I own Muller Legal Nurse Consulting, and then I also own another company called Under Oath, and I write and create continuing education courses through the American Nurses Credentialing Center for Litigation Prevention for Medical Professionals. That is so fascinating that you're under oath portion of to just to educate, you know, educating people actually working in the hospitals on how to really, I guess, prevent problems through their documentation. And reporting. It's kind of everything that you and I have been talking about today in this one case, in this litigation prevention. It's not only your documentation. It is being aware of your surroundings, reporting things that you see, not getting people in trouble, but making people aware. We wouldn't be where we are today, and you see this in statistics. As people are more aware that it's okay to report, you actually see statistics go up, and people think, well, things are worse. They're not. People are actually advocating more, they're reporting more, and we're actually getting true data where we can actually do something about them. And understanding your role, no matter where you are in the healthcare field, the reporting is not bad. It's actually good. It gives us a realistic look at what's going on. That way we can address those issues. Because if you're not reporting it and the numbers are low, people don't look at them. But as those true numbers come in, as people have started reporting more, then it becomes an issue where people are like, that's an issue we should probably take a look at. And then you see those numbers drop again because we actually address those and we come up with evidence-based practices that address those issues. So it's, that's, and that's why I am, I love what I do as a legal nurse consultant and I see it as a very viable and valid profession. But what I'm doing with Under Oath, and I see so many of these nurses go into litigation for something unintentional or they're not even really the nurse involved. And if most of them have no clue or very limited knowledge of what the legal system, how it works, how they're involved and their role in the process, and that's why it's been so successful, is there's not another program like it. And nurses get very limited exposure to the legal ramifications or processes in nursing school. And so that's, I mean, it is by far kind of my heartbeat of what I do. I absolutely love the under oath part and working with the medical professionals understanding this process. What, if you could just describe to people that are curious, there may, I would imagine there are people listening to this who are thinking legal nurse consulting, that sounds 
It sounds interesting, but I would have no idea. It's so mysterious. Can you kind of lift the veil up a little bit and let us speak behind the curtain and know what do legal nurse consultants do? What does that job look like? If you would have asked me seven years ago what legal nurse consulting was, I would have been in the same boat. I had never heard of legal nurse consulting. I did not know what legal nurse consulting was. I didn't know it was a thing. Now that I've been doing this seven years, so... In the legal world, attorneys are reviewing cases and prosecuting cases or defending cases regarding medical malpractice. So they're, they're establishing breach of duty and causation that caused injury. And then there's you know personal injury cases, a motor vehicle accident where somebody ran through a red light and hit somebody. Well, that other person, that other party is injured. There's medical issues and ongoing medical needs that, that are far and above what the attorneys understand or comprehend or know as far as medical terminology and prognosis. Workman's comp cases where people are injured on the jobs, same kind of concept. So as a legal nurse consultant, I review these medical records for case for attorneys. I provide them chronologies, chronological outlines of, you know, what was this person's prior level of functioning? What was this incident that occurred and how does it affect who they are today and their different levels of functioning from how they used to be able to function to current. And then providing expert reports, uh, opinion reports, saying it is my opinion that these things were a breach of duty, a breach of standards of practice, a violation of state and federal regulations, and knowing those things and putting them in a, a report. The biggest question I get about what I do from healthcare workers is, do I feel that I have gone against my own people? And a lot of nurses ask me that. How do you feel about testifying against another nurse? And my response is, if you knew the number of cases that I prevent from going into litigation, a lot of people only see, like especially on my, my, my CV or my resume, I have to list all the times that I've testified. If you take a look at that, it, I've reviewed over 1,100 cases. I've testified 37 times. The number of cases that I review and I go back to the attorney and say, yes, something, and a negative outcome occurred, but it wasn't because of something the healthcare providers did. This gentleman or this lady had you know, comorbidities, or you know, this is a risk factor associated with this surgical procedure or medical a procedure and understanding that those things don't need to be litigated. They're unfortunate, but not everything that happens negatively is a result of malpractice. And so the amount of cases that I prevent from even going into the into the legal system and protecting good nurses and good doctors, good good medical providers, there's a large majority, larger majority of that than there is the negatives that I see. The bad that I see is bad. But there's a lot of really good people out there doing really good work. And unfortunately, you know, negative outcomes are a part of what we deal with and what makes our job as nurses hard because we don't want to lose any patients. They're a reality. It is a reality of what we do. If there are people listening to this that are interested in getting into to being a legal nurse consultant, how hard would you say it is? Is it something that it, it sounds like it would be difficult, I guess, to to build up a business? What would you say to somebody who says, I don't know if I could do that. It just sounds like so much work and, you know, trying to build up the, a business and would I have to work a regular job, you know, and do that on the side or how does that work? That's a very common question, and I think you're crazy if you don't ask it, especially coming into a field that you don't know. It's a question I ask myself you know, a lot, trying to convince myself to leave my very 
comfortable clinical administrative position. It was even crazier going to my wife and saying, hey, let's quit our jobs and do this. Having done this for seven years, I went through LegalNurse.com, obtained my certification. The best example or way I guess I can describe this is you do what I do in a nursing role in your clinical application every single day. And it's the same thing that I do, except you're teaching patients and their families and doing quality improvement inside of those healthcare facilities. I'm doing that and I'm teaching attorneys, judges, and juries the same thing. This is the diagnosis. This is what the anatomy and physiology look like. This is what normally occurs. This is the standard of practice. It's education. And a lot of the people that I speak to that are considering coming into legal nurse consulting, that's exactly how I lay it out. You are providing an education service to the legal field, and that's what you're doing. As far as business startup, I've never owned a business. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I haven't, I didn't, you know, snap my fingers and something magical happened. The program through LegalNurse.com, it literally provided me every foundation of knowledge and, and support that I needed to both know how to start my business, to put together and draft my business and marketing plans to implement them and the follow-up, the writing of the reports, they walk you through the process of understanding what those reports look like, your role involved, whether you're a consulting expert or a testifying expert. I guess the best short answer to your question is, if you have over two years of clinical registered nurse experience, this field is open to you. I would go further to say if you have more than five years of clinical experience, it'll be easier for you. But if you are interested in quality improvement, if you're interested in, if you like the investigative side of nursing, uh, that quality improvement, quality control kind of issue and role, you ought to look into it. I have built a very successful business doing this. I've done nothing more to understand or to implement my business than go through LegalNurse.com it provided me everything I needed to build this program or this business out of that program. And if you're interested in it, there's, I mean, if you call LegalNurse.com, talk to Jeanette, she's the person that you'll talk to. She'll walk you through, you can get the first module free to review. And there's mentors like me that are available to speak to, ask questions if you want more information on both the program and uh, kind of what we do as legal nurse consultants. Yeah, she sent me the first module and I've been going through it and Vicky, that is that leads the discussion and the one that I've been watching is absolutely fascinating to listen to. She's such a good educator. She uses stories to to help to educate you. And so it's where so, there are some online educational programs that are so dry and just so hard to follow. You will hang on to her, her every word. She is just so good. And I'm really eager to get through this first module. I want to see more because it is fascinating to me. And it's so interesting to think that this LegalNurse.com is set up to where if you literally go through the whole program, you'll be ready to get, you'll be ready to get started. That's cool. And they offer that that support and they have, you know, they help you get started. It's not like just here, take these classes and then you'll know how to be a legal nurse consultant. They actually help you understand what to do to literally get going, doing a job. Well, that is, I mean, one of the main reasons that I chose, th there's other program options out there. And I'm, I mean, there's colleges, universities, other private programs. And when I was researching my options seven years ago, when I was considering doing this, the reason I chose Vicki Malazzo at the time, now legalnurse.com, was threefold. 
Number one, I chose it because Vicki was a registered nurse and an attorney. She was the pioneer of legal nurse consulting. She's the one that created it. She came up with it, and she's the one that built it into what it's become today. Number two, it, her, the LegalNurse.com CLNC program, Certified Legal Nurse Consulting Program, is accredited by the American Nurses Credentialing Center. That was huge for me. That means there was a standard set, they met it, and they have to continue to meet those criteria because they're audited to make sure that they're meeting those educational requirements. That was a big thing for me. The main reason I chose this program was when you're done with the program, they're not done with you. And I loved that aspect of the continuing mentoring from other CLNCs that are that have built successful businesses, have kind of paved the way to provide you a road, roadmap of how to be successful. You're not on an island by yourself, but there are people that you can consult with. There's people that you can collaborate with that will show you what their methods were to, to starting a successful business. How do you take this foundation of knowledge and integrate it into building a business? And then, I mean, your ability to communicate and to work with this dynamic group of people that have gone through this program, you have an unlimited, diverse professional organization that just that you can collaborate with hundreds of different people that have gone before you that have done this. And then the mentoring from people that have very successful businesses that can walk you through every aspect of it. It's That's why I chose this program over other options. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm really excited about the program. I'm excited to be connected with you and your company. And I think it's going to be a great relationship. I think that you're going to do a great job at the CreatorCon in September. And if you guys want more information about becoming a legal nurse consultant or just want to reach out to Robert, can you just let them know the best way to do that? Sure. So the best way to get information about LegalNurse.com is go to LegalNurse.com. And then there's a phone number there that you can call as well. Jeanette will be the person that you talk to. She is amazing. She has all the information. If you'd like to speak to one of the mentors, you can request that at the time and she will set up a mentoring call with one of us. If you're on here and you're seeing me, you can ask to speak to me. I will gladly take a mentoring session with you just to walk you through the program, explain the program to you, answer any questions you have about business startup, working as a legal nurse consultant, and kind of how and what I went through and what I do on a daily basis. If you have questions, glad well, any one of us, the mentors, will gladly answer those questions for you. Me personally, I would ask that you go through the program to contact me regarding legal nurse consulting because that's kind of the contractual agreement I have with them. But... The best way to get to see me is to come to a Good Nurse, Bad Nurses event on September 24th. I will be giving a 30-minute little presentation. I think we're planning on having a booth and being available to anyone that wants to speak. I am approachable. I would love to meet you, see you, and I would encourage you to come to this event. We're excited to be a part of it, both as a representative of LegalNurse.com and Malaria Legal Nurse Consulting. I look forward to meeting everyone that wants to come. If you have questions or interest, no reservations. Come walk up to me, introduce yourself. I will gladly have a conversation with you. And uh, my wife and I will both be there. We are grateful and is energized by this whole good nurse, bad nurse opportunity. And the event that's held on September 24th, we are, I mean, we're excited. We're ready to be there and we're looking forward to good things. Yeah, we're excited about it, too. I cannot wait. September 24th, please, you guys, go to nursecreatorcon.com and get your ticket. When you go on there, You there are lots of creators that are presenting this to their followers. So I would like for to have Good Nurse, Bad Nurse 
followers and listeners to be there that if you don't go and get your tickets now, plus there is an early bird price right now. So that will change at some point. But if you don't go get your tickets now, you might not be able to go. And I would love to see some. And I've already seen, I, we do have quite a few already from my listeners, but I'd love to see more. So you guys go to nursecreatorcon.com and you have to kind of pick as you purchase your tickets, you have to pick where, which creator you heard from, I guess. So anyway, looking forward to that. And you guys know that if you want to reach out to me, you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com and we're on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>